Turn with me to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, we begin this morning. We will be looking at verses 1 through 6 in our continuing series through the Gospel of Luke. And the sermon this morning is entitled, Satan's Last Stand. And our key words for our worshipers in training are Satan, Judas, and Betray. Luke 22, 1 through 6. Now maybe you're familiar with this story during the American Revolutionary War. There was a man named Benedict Arnold. And Arnold began the war as a general in the Continental Army. But later, he defected to the British Army. He was still a general on the American side, and he became the commander of the fort at West Point in New York. And what he did was offer surrender to the British forces to give them the fort. In September 1780, the plot came to light and Arnold joined the British Army as a brigadier general and was given a pension of 6,000 British pounds as a signing bonus. That's a lot of money. And many believe he was frustrated because he was passed over for promotion. Others think maybe he was sickened by others taking credit for his achievements on the battlefield. And others believe he was tired of accusations that he took people's private property for the use of the army. But whatever it was, Arnold's plan to surrender the forces and to surrender West Point to the British unraveled when a critical document was intercepted. The American forces captured British Major John Andre. He was carrying papers that revealed this proposed surrender of the West Point fort. And Arnold fled to a British ship docked on the Hudson River, and he narrowly escaped the forces of one, well, let's just say, rather irritated General George Washington. Britain quickly secured Arnold's services, and he led British raids in Virginia in New London and Groton, Connecticut, before the war ended with the American victory at Yorktown. Arnold died in London, and to this day, his name is known worldwide and is synonymous with betrayal. There are a few others throughout history with the same reputation. The now famous words for the Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, et tu, Brute, meaning, you too, Brutus? These were the supposed last words of the Roman dictator Julius Caesar to his friend Marcus Brutus at the moment of his assassination. Brutus had betrayed Caesar. He defected to Caesar's enemies to plot Caesar's murder and eventual death. But most famous of all betrayals is what we are most interested in this morning. The name that has forever become the name associated with the most heinous crime of treason and betrayal. That name that surely no one is willing to name their son. It is, of course, the name of Judas Iscariot. In our text this morning, the plot to kill Jesus is coming together. And right at the heart of it, we find... One betrayer, the most notorious defector 
in all the history of the world. Let's read our passage together, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, as we enter into chapter 22, it's important for us once again to be reminded of where we are in the story. And I know we've been summarizing a lot over the last few weeks, but it's important for us to recognize the intentionality of all this movement in Jesus' life up to these last days on earth. Now, remember, all of this really began in earnest back in chapter 9 and verse 51, which says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And remember in that same passage, the sovereignty of God's uh, divine plan was on display. When Jesus went into the village of the Samaritans, and Luke wrote in verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. That language is very interesting. They didn't receive him because he was set toward Jerusalem. They wouldn't have known that. It was part of God's plan. Jesus could not be hindered in his movement toward the cross. Clearly, it was God's sovereign design. And all along the way, we've seen Jesus talk numerous times about his suffering, about his coming death, and even about his resurrection, and his clear knowledge of all of this lying ahead for him. And yet, he steadfastly marches on toward Jerusalem. But you know what else I find so interesting about what Luke writes in 951? Notice he says nothing about Jesus' suffering and death. Now those are important, but he says the days were drawing near when Jesus would be taken up. You see, his suffering and death were necessary for our salvation, but that wasn't the pinnacle event. That wasn't the primary focus of Jesus. It was his glorious resurrection from the dead when he conquered the grave forever. For the joy that was set before him, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he endured the cross. Well, what was that joy set before him? It was the resurrection, and and because of the resurrection, it was the sure promise that he would conquer death for himself and for all who trust in him. It's a glorious reward. It's a wonderful promise. It's a truth for us to behold and to love and to depend upon. And we learn from all of this that nothing is out of the Father's control in the life of Jesus, our dear Savior. 
So Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, and we've looked over the last several weeks what happened once he arrived there. Remember, one week they're hailing him as king as he rides into the city on the back of a baby donkey, and he cleanses the temple, and time and time again he refutes the religious leaders. Last week we saw him prophesy the destruction of the entire city and the temple the central place of all of Jewish religious life. And now we get a glimpse into what's happening behind the scenes as all of this is going on. In only two more days, Jesus would be hanging on a cross between two thieves to suffer the penalty of sin. That when we trust in him and depend on his works on our behalf, we not have to suffer the everlasting penalty owed to us. In less than 48 hours for Jesus, everything changes. And beyond that, it changes even more. The time for him to be taken up is on the glorious horizon. Jesus does not die accidentally. It is in his timing that he may fulfill all that has been written about him. Now, in our text this morning, Luke tells us of three different parties that were involved in this plot to kill Jesus. And we're going to look at each one of them. The religious leaders, Judas, and Satan himself. So let's begin with the religious leaders. This is no surprise at all, is it? We've seen this coming for quite some time as we've moved along. Even if you didn't know the full story, if you've been following in the Gospel of Luke, it should be obvious at this point that his greatest enemies were going to be the religious leaders. And and in verse 2, Luke tells us that they are the principal plotters against Jesus. It was the chief priests and the scribes who were seeking to put him to death. They were plotters. They were schemers. They were shrewd politicians. But you know what else they were? They were absolutely spineless cowards. They were fearful of the popularity of Jesus among the people, and they wanted to protect themselves. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, for they feared the people. And then in verse 6, Luke writes, they worked it into their plot, a way to capture Jesus in the absence of the crowd. Think of the hypocrisy of these men. They thought so strongly that what they were going to do was important enough to kill Jesus. And yet they feared, they feared man to such an extent that they're unwilling to be let it known, to let it be known publicly what they were doing. But such is the nature of sin in our lives, isn't it? When we walk so completely resigned to the flesh, we're deceiving ourselves and our hearts to think that what we're doing is going to bring satisfaction. My sin, that's that's the pull of it all the time. My sin is going to bring satisfaction. It's going to bring joy. It's going to provide something I've been longing for and something I need. And yet, we know it's wrong. We know it's sin. We know the end game. And when we do it, we do it anyway, but we do it in the dark so that we can hide it from everyone around us. 
Think about it. What is your pet sin? What so easily ensnares you? You can attest that whatever it is, that this is how it functions in the dark. Men, for some of you, maybe it's pornography. How bad can it be? It's, it's just this once and I'll never do it again. Besides, my, my wife right now doesn't seem all that interested in me. It might actually help our marriage and give me an outlet so I don't feel lonely. I deserve this, but nobody can know about it. Ladies, maybe for you it's that gossip is a regular part of your life and you always have someone to talk to about and your opinions to share. But you've convinced yourself that you're just trying to stay involved in other people's lives. You're just sharing prayer requests. You're just making sure others are informed. But you wouldn't dare call someone you know will tell you you're gossiping and press you to solve problems that you have with other people. You see, this is the deception of the heart, the justification of sin. It's the lies upon lies that we convince ourselves of so that we can get the instant gratification that we want with the self-proclaimed promise that the long-term consequences are not going to matter all that much. That's what we do, isn't it? That's what the religious leaders did, and we'll see later that's the same thing that Judas did. Now, among the religious leaders, as they're functioning in the dark, there's this system within all, which all of this happens. There was always one family that dominated the office of the high priesthood. During Jesus' time, Annas had for 20 years been the high priest. He was eventually removed by the Roman government. However, Annas still wielded a great deal of power because all five of his sons after him were high priests as well. Currently, during the time of Jesus' final days on earth, the high priest was Caiaphas. Now, this was a family of the Sadducees. Remember, we looked at the Sadducees a few weeks ago, the liberal, anti-supernatural Jews. And remember, they didn't get along with the Pharisees. And none of the Sadducees or the Pharisees liked the Herodians. But all of them, every single one of them, was getting together for this event. Everything in their differences, all of their religious and political agendas on this earth were set aside and made to be second place for the most important task in their minds. And that was killing Jesus. The enemy of mine enemy is my friend. Now, what distinguished these religious leaders from Jesus? They weren't using a different Bible. The the text they had studied was no different from what Jesus himself knew and was teaching. So what was the difference? The difference was that they thought that the Bible was full of laws that they could just lead people to understand and add to and continuously impose on others. But they weren't going to follow them themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, he read the scriptures as a mirror of his own life. 
It spoke prophetically of the life that he would live, the ministry that he would perform, the work that he would do. And it was full of mercy and full of grace and compassion and love. And the religious leaders missed it all together. They operated from legal hearts, hearts that were concerned with maintaining power and influence and ensuring that all others were following their understanding of the law. And what happened with them is what happens with any religious leader whose attention ever so slightly begins to shift away from a passion and a compassion for lost sinners and instead moves to a desire for authority and power, a desire to insist that everyone submits to them a constant emphasis on the power they wield. And however subtly, it always leads to abuse and corruption and eventually... It leads to complete godlessness. Even with the same Bible, eventually they will cease to speak the warm words of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. No grace, no mercy, no love, no forgiveness, no compassion, only law. And even more hellish, they will eventually seek to do away with Jesus altogether. Remember, in very short order, that's what happened after the very first sermon that Jesus preached. He was in his hometown of Nazareth. And after he preached, the people sought to drive him over the edge of a cliff to have him killed. That was the beginning of his ministry. That was day one on the job. And now here at the end, we see the very same thing. They sought to kill him locally at the beginning of his ministry, and now they're seeking to do so nationally at the end. And how will they do it? Well, undoubtedly, they would have been very surprised. They were looking for opportunity and no opportunity arose, but something they had hoped for and they thought likely would never happen actually happened. And it was right there, right before them, stood a man who would help them bring Jesus to his end. And it wasn't any man, it was one of the men from the heart of Jesus' band of men, from among the twelve. Judas arose to betray Jesus in a barter to betray our Savior with a kiss. And surely they would have all reasoned that this was a good thing. This was all that they should do because in God's providence, right? In God's providence, the betrayer was provided in God's providence. We see a clear sign here. This must be the thing we need to do. Oh, how often great evil has been done when a people are seeking signs and open doors to get their way. And then when they see what they've been looking for, they completely reject the truth of God's word and chalk it all up to the providence of God. This must be in God's timing and purposes. Being a religious leader is no security, and that is a sobering reality. At the hand of religious leaders, our Savior was eventually tried, scourged, and crucified on a cross. 
and the opportunity for them to do it came at the hands of an apostle. And that's the second one involved in this. It's Judas. Now remember, all of the apostles were handpicked by Jesus and appointed to the highest office in the Christian church. These are men who were selected by Jesus, accompanied Jesus throughout his entire ministry, from the beginning of his ministry at the baptism of John up until this very point. Just let that sink in. Judas was an apostle. He was numbered among the twelve. Of all the people in this world, he was one of the twelve most privileged individuals to ever walk on this planet. So could you have recognized that he was a betrayer? No way. Not a chance. The other apostles didn't know, did they? They made him the treasurer. When Judas got up from their final meal together to go and finalize the deal with the religious leaders, all of the other apostles assumed that he was taking their money at Passover to go and serve the poor, to do mercy ministry. John in his gospel writes about Judas, though. He says, Judas Iscariot was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Has it ever struck you odd that Jesus put a thief in charge of his money bag? Of all the disciples, Jesus chose Judas to be the chief financial officer. Now, Jesus wasn't ignorant of Judas's pilfering. He knew all along what was going on. But he's also the same Jesus who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he shows us with Judas as his heart is hardened, as he is being blinded by his sin and his treasuring of all of the wrong things, he gives us an example of what the love of money will bring us to. For a while, it can actually look like true devotion to God. It can, it can look like being one of the Lord's apostles. Saying the right things, performing the right things, doing the right things. That's why the other apostles didn't suspect anything at all. But it was a grievous blow to all of the men when Judas's idolatry surfaced. But Jesus wasn't concerned about the money. His concern was Judas. But Judas... Judas displayed 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. For Judas all along, iniquity was at work. Small iniquities, perhaps, the kind that you and I would look at and say, it's not that big of a deal. He was a treasure. He put his fingers in the bag. It wasn't a great sin. I'm just going to borrow a little bit here for this need. I'll pay it back eventually. It's not that big of a problem. But no doubt it was a sin that Judas was never prepared to confess to the Lord Jesus. 
But the Lord Jesus was the only one who could ever forgive him and could have spoken a word into his heart to quiet his conscience and to bring him into the joy of being an apostle. But instead of opening his heart and confessing his sin, he closed his heart to Jesus. And it all began to slowly but surely devour him. We know the drill. We know how it works. Picture your life like a room in a house. Beautiful hardwood floors, swept clean, polished, sunlight streaming in through the windows, photos of family and friends hanging on the walls, the furniture arranged just perfectly how you want it. It's peaceful, it's quiet. But over in the corner, hidden in the shadows, is a tiny little crack between the floorboards. And a small little ugly weed has sprouted. It's so small. It's, it's so easy to hide. Instead of pulling it out, you, you can cover it up with a rug or with a chair. You can ignore it. You can just downplay its significance. Besides, there are so many other beautiful, wonderful things to enjoy in this room. But that weed, slowly but surely, it grows and it grows and it grows. It's thorny, it's twisted, and the vines steadily spread across the floor and climb the walls and they wrap themselves around the tables and the chairs and they even grow over the windows. But it's happened so slowly you didn't even recognize it. It begins to block out all of the sunlight and no part of the room is untouched. Everywhere you turn, the weed has invaded and it is choking out life. In fact, you can't remember what it was like before it was there. That's the power. That is the overwhelming influence. That's the deceptive and destructive nature of sin in our hearts. That's what happened with Judas. And that's what can happen with you and I if we're not killing our sin as soon as it begins. Because I can either confess my sin to Jesus or I will end up betraying him in the end. Listen, Judas's first sin was not any bigger than your or my first sin. His first sin was no less cosmically significant than any sin in my heart that I failed to confess to Jesus, asking for pardon and the desire to live a life free of that sin altogether. Judas refused to seek the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live by God's mercy in his life. But I wouldn't have recognized him for who he really was. And you wouldn't have either. That's why it's so important to at least recognize your own heart that we ask the Lord to reveal to us our own heart. Do you have something unconfessed in your life? The question's not, is it a small thing? Do I have it under control? Am I keeping it under wraps? It's not taking over too much. It will take over. But the real question is, is it forgiven because it has been confessed? 
And if it's forgiven, it's not because it's forgivable, it's because we've confessed it. And the Lord Jesus has seen fit to do so. Lord Jesus, forgive me, help me, remove the sin from my life. But if that's not our cry, if that's not our heart, if that is not our desire and what's truly going on inside of us, we will eventually find ourselves extending our hand to shake with the betrayers of Jesus, deceiving ourselves and deceiving everyone else around us when we eventually betray our Savior. And it's here where we see the most sinister of all involvement in the death of Jesus. It is with the great enemy who is Satan. Verse 3 again, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. Now think back with me to Genesis 3 and verse 15. What did God promise In that glorious verse of Scripture, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, was it not told to us from the very beginning how it would all come to an end? How this age-old conflict between the serpent and the seed of woman who was Christ would come to a victorious end. You see, this, leading up to Jesus' death, this was Satan's last stand. And certainly he knew that the end of him lie ahead, but it didn't slow him down. He knew it was going to come to an end, but it didn't stop him. So Satan entered into Judas, and Judas was his instrument of destruction. And yet, could Judas say... The devil made me do it. Of course not. The devil's powerful, to be sure, but the devil cannot make you do one single thing that you don't already want to do. You do it because you're willing to do it. The devil is responsible for whatever temptation he sets before you. But you... Not your neighbor, not your friend, not your spouse. You have the responsibility of whatever you decide to do with that temptation. Do you know the difference of what it looks like when someone is slowly backing away from the Lord in their life as opposed to the one who commits outright apostasy and denies the Lord? Do you know what that looks like? Indifference? Is there any difference at all? There is no way whatsoever that we can tell if someone is sliding ever so slightly away from the Lord Jesus or if they're betraying him altogether. Because this is where unconfessed sin ends up. It's where it ended up with Judas. It's possible to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and to deny him altogether. That's what Jesus is talking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Judas did that. And cast out demons in your name? Judas did that. And do many mighty works in your name? Judas did that too. 
the Lord Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Think of Judas, all that he saw, all that he did. Judas did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. He was given power to heal. He was given power to cast out demons. And yet he hears, I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, when we hide ourselves, we never truly get to know anyone at all. We aren't known and we can't know others. Are you known? It's a desperate need that we all have to be known, to truly be known by others. But so few of us are. Does anyone know your sins? your struggles, your failures, your weaknesses? Does anyone have your trust to where you can confess your heart to them, knowing that they will pray for you and check on you and love you despite yourself? Does anyone know you? We must be praying, Lord, you know me through and through. Show me more of my sin. Scratch away the surface that I can be forgiven to the very depth of my being, that I can know the joy of pardon and freedom. Lord, help me to trust others so that I can be known by them, to open my heart to them, to expose my life to them. Are you known? When we confess our sin and open our lives, the Lord doesn't just deal with that sin, though, and this is why it's so scary for us. When we confess one sin, the Lord starts tinkering with other things. He comes into the room and he cuts down the overwhelming vines and the weed that started out so small. But then when he clears all of that out of the way, he says, you know, I never really liked how that furniture was arranged in the first place. Let's move that over here. Let's take that picture and hang it over there. Jesus changes all of me. But Judas didn't want that. Judas wasn't prepared for that. And of all of Jesus' apostles in the final days, there wasn't just one, but there was two who sinned against him in denial. One of them betrayed him. And one of them blasphemously denied him in front of others. But here's the difference. The one, instead of saying, Lord, forgive me, instead he decided that he would rather die. The second one, after sinning, he went out into the dark night and he cried like a baby that the Lord would forgive him for denying him. And in the end, he heard those precious words, Peter, Do you love me? And feed my sheep. Do you really love Jesus? Do you want your sins forgiven? It sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But it's not if you're hard-hearted. It's not at all. You would rather die than to have your sins forgiven. And that is the iniquity at work within those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank God that the kind 
of Savior that we have is one who overcomes iniquity when we confess to him, I need you, Lord Jesus. When we come to him and we ask, can you possibly forgive me? The Lord Jesus is so kind. He says, possibly forgive you? I died to forgive you. Have mercy on me. Blot out my sins. Wash away my iniquities and restore the joy of my salvation. That is the heart of a believer. Are you doing that? Are you praying to the Lord like that? If not, if you never have, I pray that you begin now and find that the Lord Jesus Christ is a great and wonderful and loving Savior to his people. Let's pray together. Father, the sin and wickedness of betrayal Were it not for your sustaining, powerful grace, we would all find ourselves walking in the steps of Judas. And yet, Father, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, you have placed within us a desire to honor you, to not reject you, to not sin against you, to not continue in unconfessed sin, but to be washed clean, to be restored to continuously reveal our hearts to you and to others that we might be known, that we might be accountable, that we might not bear the name of Judas or Benedict Arnold or Brutus. Let us not be numbered among that band of men. We want to be a faithful people who honors those we are in relationship with And most importantly, who honors Christ. Christ who has loved us. Christ who continuously forgives us. Christ who has purchased us with his own blood. And so we pray, Father, that this morning that you would pierce our hearts where sin resides and that you would do the work that only you can do by the power of your Spirit to continue to transform our hearts, that we would walk in faithfulness and godliness and holiness for your name's sake, that we would be a people who openly confesses our sins, that we may be forgiven, that we not slide away from the Lord Jesus and eventually find ourselves denying him altogether. Lord, protect us from having hearts like Judas Keep us, sustain us, strengthen us, and may all of our hope and joy be bound up in him alone. And it's for his namesake we pray. Amen.